I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about The Mummy, the 1999 version, directed by Stephen Summers, screenplay by Stephen Summers, based on the 1932 The Mummy, which I only learned today. We can talk about more of that. Uh, I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayetos. Hi. Okay, so we're talking about The Mummy, which we've been very excited about (laughs) because Trisha, Alex, and I, anyway, I think this movie holds a a special place in our hearts. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we all saw it when it came out. So I'm going to pick on you, Brian, because you did not see it when it came out. You saw it recently. So I want just like the fresh 2021 take. What did you (laughs) make? The hottest take of them all. This movie. (laughs) I mean, it's funny, right? There's this running theme uh, of me watching movies for the first time now that I didn't see when I was a teenager, you know, so it's like I saw The Iron Giant for the first time and I loved it. And I saw Mulan for the first time and I loved it. And I saw The Mummy for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was fine. Uh, <laughs> oh. No, I think it's it's funny because it is one of those things where it's like it definitely I could definitely see how this would help to have a sort of teenage experience to to sort of tie to this movie you know michael we were talking off camera about the fifth element and you're like based on the clips that you've seen you have no interest in watching this like ridiculous movie right and i as someone who loves that movie i'm like no but 15 year old me comes out when i watch Mm -hmm. this movie and has such a good time right also it's incredibly stupid sort of by (laughs) design right and it's like there's no there's no part of me that would argue with somebody who saw the fifth element for the first time today and said, well, that was just like, I didn't enjoy that at all. I'd be like, yeah, I get that. You know? <laughs> so I think that was sort of my experience with the mummy. It's this sort of, um, it was like, I was really ready for just a fun, you know, cause this was back when movies were fun. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> like, what a time. Yeah. <laughs> which hasn't happened much in the past decade or so. Even like the superhero movies aren't fun. Right. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I was, I was like all ready to have a good time. And then it was just, it keeps pushing the boundary of where I'm, I enjoy the comedy, basically. It's like mm. any movie that has the bookshelf, uh, ladder <laughs> sequence. I'm like, that's just probably not a movie for me. You know, the it's mummy. So, mm. It's so good. Yeah. It's a long case. <laughs> they did it in camera. <laughs> the mummy juggling his head you know and then brendan fraser like hits it and it goes towards camera i think the problem with me the first time i watched it i sort of like 2x watched it basically uh earlier today to kind of remember it and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and the first time was i was just like i'm having such a hard time settling into where is where is this movie trying to be tonally right is if it's trying to be just a crazy slapstick comedy okay but then you've got to do that consistently but it's not it's sort of like look we're a serious kind not serious but like we are we're sort of a standard adventure movie and now we're this zany comedy but now we're like doing this thing and now we're telling you this backstory you know um and it sort of jumps all over the place and sort of scrubbing through it again knowing what it was i was able to just enjoy it and have fun and and that kind of thing so i could see it being a movie that i would like upon rewatching. But just the first time, I was just like, I can't kind of settle into this. And it just, you know, it didn't quite work for me. Hmm. I think that is perfectly reasonable. I think it was very fascinating (laughs) revisiting The Mummy uh, because I hadn't seen it in a long time. But I did watch it a lot when it came out when I was, you know, 13, 14, all that stuff. And 
also having this this kind of experience where I think I'd like I'd almost like redacted sections of it mm, in my brain. Sure. And so I was like, I was really excited to go back and I'm going to watch The Mummy. It's so much fun. It's such a great adventure. And then there would be these weird left turns tonally like you're talking about. And I was like, oh, I forgot that that's in this. Or I thought that was in the sequel, which I've decided is not good and not part of the... So it was very weird uh, having to reconcile my memory of right. The Mummy and what it actually is now. I still think... It's pretty cool. I think mm. I've kind of classified it as like, I don't know that it's good, but it's kind of great also. And I Absolutely. think the tonal mess ultimately kind of averages out into something that's like fun and works for me. But yeah, Alex and Trisha, I'm curious to hear what your guys' experience was then and now and, and how you kind of feel about all these things. Alex, do you want to share thoughts? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, all I know is I watched it a ton back in the day. Like I it's one of those movies from that era that I just watched over and over and over again. So it's seared in my brain, uh, you know, like the matrix, like other movies from that, you know, that magical year, 1999, it was mm-hmm. part of that collection that I, was just like super influential on me as a like aspiring filmmaker. I, I don't even know if I had like an objective perspective on it back then. Like I wasn't really aware of the genre tropes it was playing with besides it was kind of like Indiana Jones, you know, and, Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of even like the idea of it maybe being kind of a B movie that has a huge mm-hmm. budget, mm-hmm. which thing is a really interesting way to think about it because Universal originally wanted to make a pretty low budget mummy movie, just thinking of it as like a B horror movie, basically. Right. And Stephen Summers came to them with this like bigger, you know, Indiana Jones style pitch. And they liked it so much, they blew the budget up to 80 million. And so you get this movie that feels free to be a B movie, you know, where it's Mm -hmm. not taking itself too seriously. It's kind of all over the place. It's kind of grotesque in a lot of these weird ways. It it goes to these horror places that don't seem like they belong in the same movie with this kind of fun and games lightheartedness. (laughs) And all of that combines into this really special one of a kind thing (laughs) that even at the time, I I do remember feeling like, wow, this is strange. This movie both has this and this in it. Like I, I, my, I wasn't mm-hmm. used to movies having this kind of grotesquerie, but also this kind of cute, you know, innocence <laughs> at other times. Like charm. The charm. Yeah. So much charm. Charm yeah. and spades. So, so all that is to say, uh, yeah, it's hard to even speak about the movie from a super objective place because I've, I feel like I've been in it too much. Um, mm-hmm. But it was fun to revisit it and be able to see it with kind of my like film language knowledge now. and see all the places it's pulling from so directly and think about like what a rare thing it was at the time. We talked about Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl being this Mm -hmm. rare, pure adventure film, you know, with a twist with zombie pirates. Mm -hmm. This is very similar. The the finale feels very similar to Pirates of the Caribbean with zombie mummies (laughs) and and, a curse you have to break to kill the bad guy and all those things. Make him mortal and then you can kill him for real. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, it's it's an artifact of this time where we still had adventure movies and I I forgot that this existed before Pirates and it almost seems like a prototype for Pirates in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. Lots of thoughts. Yeah. 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 Trisha? I feel very similar to you, Alex, in that like, this is such a part of my like DNA at this point that I don't know how to 
talk about it in any way other than just like, I love this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I love this movie so much. Is it a good movie? I like that. That question is so far beyond me, and right, I'm also right. not even interested in it. Like, right. I'm not interested in that question at all. Like, <laughs> it is. It is just a ridiculous amount of fun. This movie to me, and like, obviously, it like everything in me personally responds to it. It's this swashbuckle, like, action adventure period thing with like a plucky heroine and like lots of lots of action sequences. Way too many, like. <laughs> The plot doesn't make any sense the way it winds through all of these action sequences. There's a huge like riverboat action sequence that you forget is in this movie. And right. it's great. Like, yeah, that sequence is really fun. All yeah. of well, all of these action sequences are so much fun and, mm-hmm. and really great. And there's just they're packed in there. And it only sort of holds together because of Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weiss's performances. But those performances have such magnetism and also delight to them that they really just hold you and they hold this movie and, and the I don't know, all the just like horror elements. It's so splashy and like <laughs> sort of technicolor, you know, 30s adventure. Allow me to quote Roger Ebert here from his review from 1999, which begins, there is within me an unslaked hunger for preposterous adventure movies. And that is exactly how I feel about this. And then he goes on to say about The Mummy, there is hardly a thing I can say in its favor, except that I was cheered by nearly every minute of it. Right. (laughs) I cannot argue for the script, the direction, the acting, or even The Mummy, but I can say that I was not bored and sometimes I was unreasonably pleased. There is that's great. Roger Ebert. Yes, yes, yes. The last line of that opening paragraph reads, there is a little immaturity stuck away in the crannies of even the most judicious of us, and we should treasure it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Beautiful. I treasure this movie. Right. That's just the best way to put that, right? Like, just, I can't argue any of this is good, but man, I had a good time. Wow, I love it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. When it it feels like the movie is, is operating on that level on on all the levels like that's how every part of it feels it's Mm -hmm. like yeah none of this is good but it's all kind of great Mm -hmm. and so uh, watching it again today because i watched it a couple maybe like a month and a half ago and then watch it again today trying to kind of pick apart what are some of the things that that do work when they're working and and the performances obviously rachel weiss and brennan fraser are i find them immensely charming they got a really fun like Han Solo Leia kind they of vibe really going on like it's yeah it's, it's great but I also appreciated in the the directing and the staging that a, a lot of the gags and their commitment to the gags like oh, we were yeah. talking about the Rachel Weiss accidentally knocking down a room full of books and that it all being practical and in a single take or even just on that riverboat fight you know there's a, a shootout happening and Brendan Fraser's you know, reloading his gun and a bullet, you see a bullet hole yep. hit the wall that he's hiding behind and another it's coming closer and closer. And then she reaches and pulls him out of the way for the last one. Like, mm-hmm. All these things are just really like fun. Like there's there's a lot of care put into each one of the like these gags. And in some ways, it almost feels like like a play. Like now I'm thinking about, you know, after they release the mummy and then they go back to the city, Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz are arguing in their room and you know it's that thing where like he's packing up the bags and she's unpacking the bags Mm. that one really stuck out to me yeah (laughs) right and it's it's all kind of in this like long wide shot and you you get to see the characters 
uh, like relationships play in real time and the staging of all of it. I, just, I feel like there's all of that goes a long way to kind of creating this, the adventure and, and like you're saying, Trisha, the magnetism between them and the performances, we get to like spend time in it and watch it play out and let them tell the story in these just really well-crafted sequences that, yeah, maybe don't make sense one-to-one-to-one as you watch them in order, but within each one are, are really great. Mm-hmm. It actually reminded me a lot of Temple of Doom, which we'll talk about when we get to 750 patrons, everyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's a movie I loved a bunch as a kid, and people say it's like the worst of the of the only three Indiana Jones movies. <laughs> And but like it also has that sequence where where he and Kate Capshaw are arguing in the hallway and then they each close their door and stuff like that. Right. Then but then he's being strangled, I think. And then she comes to the door and she's like still arguing and he's like fighting for mm-hmm. his life. That kind of thing. It sort of has that fun to it, which, again, if I had seen the mummy when I was a kid and Temple of Doom for the like for the first time right now, I might have opposite opinions of those movies, you know, but it's just like that was my experience as a kid. Mm-hmm. Well, it feels like. The Mummy in general really is paying homage, a really loving homage to old Hollywood, right. you know, Errol Very Flynn much. adventure. Mm-hmm. And it includes the kind of screwball comedy of the romance. I took a note in the opening sequence, like the flashback to like this, you know, the old Egypt flashback and, and you know, the kind of the sets and the costumes. It was like old Hollywood, but with like sexy 90s skin, you know, under the moon walks in and she's like basically naked. And it, it was just it was like this really fun, like mishmash of kind of campy old style filmmaking with like a 90s edge, uh, which I really enjoy. Yeah. Even those sequences where, you know, they all the practical sets where everything is just like fake stone draped in fake moss and yeah. like sand is flying everywhere and like all of this stuff, you know, the stuff that doesn't have the CGI sort of beetles in it or whatever, the stuff that's all just sort of like practical old school stunt work and, mm-hmm, um, right. you know, Hollywood, like we built this on a lot here, are the catacombs and, you know, all the walls move and stuff like that. That is exactly what you're talking about. That creates that old timey feeling. I think as I've gotten older, there are movies where when I watch an action movie, sometimes as a like teenage boy, I was like, I don't care about the dialogue. I'm going to go do something. And now, oh, now's the action scene. And I've almost gotten reversed where I'm like, I'm like, oh, it's just the action. Nothing's really going to happen here. Obviously, there are movies with amazing action scenes that I want to watch. But sometimes there are movies where it's just like, okay, this chase sequence has gone on for 10 minutes or whatever. And The Mummy definitely felt like one of those movies where the action scenes were just so fun that I was having a great time during all of them. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm so back into this. And like I, I kind of maybe tuned out for a second, but like now I'm totally on board. Um, and that is mostly the practical stuff because then the CG is, oh, boy, it's, <laughs> it's rough. I remember wow. in 2001 being at my friends and we were watching The Tonight Show and Brendan Fraser was on for Mummy Returns. And he's setting up the clip and he's like, they can do everything with computers now. We're being so in the clip you're about to see, we're being chased by these demons, but they're all computer, like they're computer made. So they're not actually they weren't actually there. And he sets this whole thing up and then they show the clip and it's just the worst CG. Like even in 2001, my friend and I were like, oh, wow, nobody in the right mind would think like, how did they do that? Mm-hmm. Well, it was like the rock body double in that movie, right? right. As the Scorpion King. That was that the re- second or the third or whichever? The second? He appears for the first time in 
Mummy in Returns. The and then, they did, then they did a prequel about the Scorpion King. Right. Right. But I feel like the infamous shot of like the scorpion with the body and face <laughs> of the rock is, right. is from like, the Mummy Returns. Very low, just, okay. very low resolution. Yeah. <laughs> right. Worst CG. And in some ways, I feel like it kind of, you know, Alex, you're talking about the sort of taking the old and mixing it with the new. I feel like ultimately the visual effects work for me in that mode in the mummy not in the mummy returns mm-hmm. but I, I agree with you it's kind of in the same way that it, it still works for me in pirates there's something about the way the, the cg mummies look that it's obviously cg but it's not in a way that takes me out of the fun of the action like i i'm i'm still mm-hmm. enjoying watching brandon fraser like knock away all these cg you know skeleton things away from rachel weiss I, sure I don't know. and i think Maybe in this case for me, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier, where the old school effects don't look real either. They look different. They look old school, but they look like they're from the 30s, kind of. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they're supposed to where, yeah, like I said, the the rocks don't look like real heavy rocks, like and that kind of thing. It looks like a set and it's lit like a set. And, you know, except for the stuff that they did shoot on location, which all looks great and, and everything. But yeah, all that catacomb stuff where the huge statue falls and you know they're like having these like books and these like built props that have Mm -hmm. a prop like quality to them (laughs) that are (laughs) right (laughs) not real they are hollywood props and so when you combine things like that with cg where you can see how it's fake right there's a sort of equal level of fakeness i feel (laughs) right that kind of just combines and feels tonally sort of consistent in spite (laughs) of itself (laughs) <laughs> it's something I remember talking about with my friends when The Phantom Menace came out, where I was like, look, the CG's not good, but it kind of fits in the world of this movie because everything is sort of candy colored and, and insane, right. right? So the CG isn't as off-putting as the Harry Potter movie or something where everything is like meant to look very dark and, and then suddenly there's this cartoon running around and you're like, that doesn't look quite right. Mm-hmm. Something I was thinking about watching it again also was, you know, the the phrase set pieces, right? Like you mm. want your movie to have really good set pieces. And like you're saying, Trisha, like these are very literally set pieces where you, you <laughs> yeah. feel like, okay, there was a scene, they built a set and this set is for this scene. But then they like, you know, milk it for all it's worth. Like, you know, we're talking about the, the riverboat scene. Like that's a really fun set piece that has everything you want from, like you get to spend some time there and you get the little exposition and then you get to watch them burn it all down and blow it up. And I feel like that, rhythm is just so fun that sequence makes me feel like i'm at disneyland like that like the boat sequence i'm like this is an amazing disneyland place slash ride slash experience and i just want to like be here for a while and so i'm so glad we get to be there for a while right actually you're identifying i think what i'm trying to put my finger on alex which is the feeling of being immersed in a fantasy world Mm. while being reminded that it's fantasy constantly and and the fun that that can be where it's not trying to act grounded, you know? And so everything about this movie tonally contributes to that feeling where there's, you know, everyone's like a little too fast with a quip and too good at this and that. And, you know, tone, the humor is really present, obviously. I feel like that just sort of is the fun of the ride that makes it, gives it this ride-like feeling that also Pirates of the Caribbean, the movie... (laughs) Mm-hmm. has yeah right? right and so stephen summers who wrote and directed this movie the mummy also made a version of the jungle book in 1994 
which we were talking about a little bit earlier today in the Slack because I, I forgot remembered about that it. it existed. I know. Uh, Lena Haiti is in it? Like, yes. What? Yes. I mean, it's like, it's it's great to my recollection. I have not seen it in 20 years. <laughs> I'm sure it is not great. But my little heart loved it the way that I love the mummy. Um, but I was thinking, I was like describing it to someone today. And I was like, this is what I wish the Jungle Cruise movie would be right like right. the jungle cruise movie is not going to be like the jungle book from 1994 but i wish that it were going to be like that i wish <laughs> right. they were going to lean into this like get on this yeah sort of quaint old fashioned like genre ride and like have a good time while you're in it which the indiana jones ride at disneyland also feels that way very right. much right i feel the problem now is yeah there's this kind of the the mummy for example is huge. Like this movie goes way farther than you ever think it will. I mean, it has the apocalypse happening. It has the biblical <laughs> plagues, like things you you never like them. signed up for. This movie go like it goes there, but somehow it also feels like it's within this. I don't know this 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 universe, this like this bubble that we're in, and and it feels coherent in in its craziness. One of my problems with some of these remakes or reboots or just. We got to take this IP and like make an even bigger thing out of it and put it in IMAX. Somehow we, the bigness leaves the sphere that I want to be in and it, it goes yeah. to this other place. And so Jungle Cruise, I don't know what the movie's going to be like, but I'm scared that it's going to be like, it turns out it's a fantasy, like alternate universe where, you know, there's actually like magical jungle fairies. And it's like, there's a whole <laughs> political thing with the jungle fairies. Like, they're going to try to make it way more than what it could be, which is just a really fun throwback Jungle Cruise adventure. You know, like, yeah, maybe that's OK, too, instead of whatever all this IP building stuff is. It's a scale issue that I feel like modern movies run into constantly where it's like the world is going to end and then the world is going to end and then <laughs> the world is the universe is going to end. half of all life in the universe right. is, you know, gonna <laughs> right. end. just it keeps blowing up and blowing up. and you lose touch with the characters, I think, when that happens. And mm -hmm. I think that one of the smartest things this movie does, as we touched on earlier, is keep us focused on Rick and on Evie mm -hmm. and their love story. And there's, like, really only sort of three characters we really care about, them and, you know, um, Jonathan, sort of, mm -hmm. and then some of the others eh, here and there. But a lot of those people are really just there to get killed. Right. And so the Americans. Benny is a great, you know, kind Benny of is, yeah. evil, henchman. yeah, henchman person, yeah. <laughs> but it does stay, I think that's what you're talking about, Alex. The scale, you know, even while there are locusts flying everywhere, the scale still feels small because we know what Imhotep wants, and it's Evie. Right. And so, like, that's a very focused sort of small sort of goal for the villain that we can, and, you know, he and the hero are competing for the same goal. Right. right. So <laughs> it, it it's very smart to to make it about the characters themselves. It's not about Imhotep wants to conquer the world. He wants right. this one specific exactly. person that we care about. Yep. I was thinking also about verisimilitude, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something mm -hmm. that also happens has happened uh, in the last twenty years with movies. Is it like it's about the end of the world, and it it needs to feel like it's really about the end of the world, and like things need to feel real, and you have to believe <laughs> this world, even though it's completely unbelievable. And I think that's what's kind of refreshing about the mummy is like there's enough there that you can believe in this movie, but at no point do I feel like the movie is trying to make me accept 
that the reality that these characters are in is my reality or that it could ever be. Right. Right. It's like if suddenly we cut to a news anchor explaining what was going right. on, it would just <laughs> feel like this movie is insane. But you're not. You're with the people the whole time. You know, and it's it's also a very slow build where you have the expositional intro and then you have the opening scene with Rick. And then you have half a movie, right, of just sort of like exploring stuff. Before the mummy stuff, wakes up. Yeah. Right. Before mm-hmm. like the midpoint, of course. And then even then for like the second half of the second act, we're only with those few characters in the tomb. That kind of thing. So then it's not until the third act where all hell breaks loose. And by then you've bought it. And as you were saying, Tricia, the world can end in the third act. <laughs> it's a problem when the world is ending at the inciting incident and then just has to keep ending for the rest of the movie. And like, <laughs> they have to keep one upping themselves like Pacific Rim, the, you know, the mech punching the kaiju into space or whatever. Where it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the movie doesn't try to explain how the plagues are working or like mm, how sure. all the water Certainly and alcohol <laughs> turned into blood. Like we don't cut to the Pentagon being like, we're seeing activity over right. Egypt, right? Now. It's like, <laughs> like, there's no sense of like a, an external universe that is right. like concerned with what's happening. It's just, it's just happening locally here. We don't know where the locust came from or how it even works. It's just happening. And that's really refreshing and what a relief. Well, and that's exactly what I was thinking too about it when I was watching it this time. When we talked about Pirates of the Caribbean, which is a Patreon episode, we were discussing the mechanics like i don't know i got really interested in the mechanics like the magic in pirates of the caribbean Mm -hmm. and like what are the pieces that you need to do the curse right like how how are the objects related who has them where are they you have to keep track of that i think pirates does a great job of that the mummy does a terrible job of that (laughs) right like (laughs) i have I've watched this movie 50 times and I can't tell you like, okay, so he needs the jars, the organ jars. Are the organs right. in them? Clearly not because now he's taking organs from other people. Um, And then like <laughs> he has the power of the plagues. Not all of them apparently because there's only like four <laughs> Just that half. we see. Yeah. yeah, it's like half the plagues, <laughs> but definitely not all. They come at random times. Sometimes he's there actually controlling them. Sometimes he's not anywhere near them, not really controlling them at all. He's sand sometimes. He's just sometimes sand. Sometimes he's made of sand. He's afraid of cats, afraid but of only cats. up until a certain point. Right. right? <laughs> How does any of this relate to, you know, like the ceremony that he needs to bring Noxuna Moon back to life? Don't worry about that. There's just so, there's so many pieces that you need for the machine. The mechanics of the mummy are a disaster. But we don't care because Rick and Evie are people that we love. And like, ultimately, we can track with, okay, the mummy is trying to get Evie. We got it. And there's that simplicity to staying focused on the characters. It gets you stuff. Like as the screenwriter, you get some of that. We're going to have the 10 plague scene now. And you kind of get it for free without having to explain it by staying focused on the characters and scaling it down and keeping it small. Smart. I just love when it when just it suddenly cuts to a wide shot of Cairo and there's like a million fireballs raining down. <laughs> it goes from like zero to a hundred in like a second. It's like plagues now. There aren't really consequences. There are never consequences <laughs> no, right. any yeah. of the plagues. No. Yeah. I think the the little prologue that begins the movie helps mm-hmm. kind of set this tonality also because 
that whole sequence is pretty bonkers if you try to follow it oh yeah too much and i just don't understand like so he was so bad you wanted you're gonna use this curse on him but like you right. could have you could have just killed him but instead you're gonna do the curse that has the like asterisks you know <laughs> once in three thousand years it might bring about the end of the world like it, it feels i don't know the decision making doesn't make any sense. Was it worth it's... it to curse him with this? <laughs> this is a possible consequence. Right. And it's just, yeah, it's it's so melodramatic. Yeah. But yeah. I think that's kind of why it, it works ultimately for me is that it is drawing your focus, even the, like the way it's shot away from like, don't worry about like thinking about what's happening too much here. The important part is this melodrama of these lovers that couldn't be and killed mm-hmm. the pharaoh and she's going to sacrifice herself and like it's helping point your attention to these are the things this story is going to care about these other things maybe not so much. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was and that was a weird thing for me. It was like watching the movie for the first time that exposition scene was cool and I was like okay cool I get what happened here and all this stuff and then we cut to the battle sequence which is a lot of fun but then it's sort of like oh by the way this movie's like insane and and goofy and that kind of thing i was like oh okay because you just showed me like a really long like very <laughs> melodramatic you know but I, I really do like the way that that sequence sets up brendan fraser's character he's sort of more of an everyman right because he's like he's not a coward but he's scared he's not going to stand there and just try to fight a hundred people he's going to run for his life it's sort of a way of saying this isn't harrison ford or Tom Cruise. <laughs> and uh, it, this is more of like kind of a hero, but also kind of a guy. And I think like Brendan Fraser is a good casting for that kind of a role, you know. And one thing that surprised me is as a fan of uh, Airheads and Encino Man, I was not expecting a long haired Brendan Fraser in this movie, but I got that. And that was just a really nice little icing <laughs> on the cake was just like, long haired, you know, off the rails, don't know what he's gonna do next, Brendan Fraser. I was like, oh cool. Of the jail I, sequence. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. For feral. like a minute, but I yeah. but it was one minute more than I was expecting. So I was <laughs> I was on board for it. I don't love his name. I feel like that O'Connell. Rick O'Connell. Yeah, O'Connell it, it, is not a good name to yell. The, the the fact that she calls him O'Connell constantly. <laughs> right. Right. But it is such a old timey Hollywood name, right? It's like I that feel feels like calling it out is a old Hollywood thing. Right. O'Connell. <laughs> yeah. It's just like Rick O'Connell is I don't know. Indiana Jones is pretty hard to beat, I guess. Totally. So. I mean Indiana Jones is kind of a terrible name, right? <laughs> like let's be clear about that. But it's so cool. I like, agree. Indy. Like you it can rolls yell Indy. And Indy, yeah, it works. But yeah. his name is Indiana. They named the dog Indiana. Like, come on. I just was thinking a lot about character design though of rick o'connell when i was Mm. watching it this time and why he's so great and if you guys have thoughts on this i am so curious to hear them it's not just because he is incredibly gorgeous and has the coolest costumes in this movie which he really does and also has the coolest guns all the time Mm. and like Great hair, great pants. Like, in that great opening everything. sequence, when he's like reloading and he's got a bullet in his teeth and he's just like backing <laughs> up and he's like pulling bullets out of his teeth to put them in his rifle. Come on. Anyway, the guns kind of like they're cool, but it's also just like adult me is sort of like that's really like what's better than one gun? Two guns. <laughs> How much ammo does he have in them? As much ammo as we need for the sound effects to fill until we've decided that now he needs to reload his six shooters that he just shot 40 shots from 
It's a little silly, <laughs> but it is cool. I feel like it's but part it's of cool. the whole, right? Yeah. yeah. It's like playing with guns, like toy guns as a kid is basically how the actors are treating mm-hmm. the guns. Yeah. Right. This must have been post Tomb Raider also, because I feel like Tomb Raider yeah. uh, kind of popularized Infinite the, you know, gun. Lara Croft running around with her dual pistols is kind of an iconic thing. Right. Yeah. But I think, too, one of the things that makes him so lovable is he's very quick and impulsive, almost, where he's decisive in his actions and he's just a man of action that doesn't think or talk about what he's going to do. He just does things. And that both works to his advantage a lot in this movie and it also gets him into trouble sometimes. His wit is one of the one example of that. But also the you know the fact that like for example he just punches Jonathan through the bars of the jail cell and then kisses Evie through the bars of the jail cell. Mm-hmm. Both of those are just essentially gut reaction sort of things. He's just sort of seizing the opportunity without thinking them through or talking about what he's going to do next. Mm-hmm. And he makes a great leader of the team for this reason and sort of the perfect protagonist for this movie because I feel like I see so many movies where the team is just sitting around arguing about what they're going to do and the hero's Mm. trying to like sell them a plan and O'Connell does none of that. He's never trying to sell a plan to anyone. He's just off starting the next plan and people Mm. kind of just have to follow along with whatever his plan is. I don't know, the perfect example of it is later in the movie where... He's like, okay, Evie, you're going to stay here. You two guys are going to guard the door. And Jonathan, you're coming with me. And Evie's like, how dare you? I'm not going to do any of that. And he just picks her up and throws her into the room and (laughs) shuts the doors and locks it and just walks away. But it's without breaking, you know, breaking expression, breaking his stride. He just is like immediately, I'm doing the plan. I'm not even going to like argue with you about it. And it keeps the action moving. But also, again, it gets him into trouble sometimes where the first thing he does when he meets the mummy is shoot it. And he mm-hmm. thinks that's handled it, right? He's like, no, I got mm-hmm. it. I definitely yeah, got right, him. It's right. all fixed and handled. So being a man of action is sort of perfect for this, where we buy that he can handle things as they're thrown at him because he's very quick. But also, yeah, it, it just like saves us from talking too much. It just right. keeps the movie <laughs> yes. keeps the movie fun. Right. It also helps us as the audience to not spend too much time thinking about it when all the other characters right. want to make their plans and stuff like that. He's like, oh, let's just do this now. Exactly. Well, and I think it's that he he is a man of action, but he also listens. Like he can listen to reason. Cause mm. I feel like he's also kind of being contrasted with the other Americans, right? Who are, you know, like the British people call them cowboys. And there's, you know, the one right. guy that I just wish is jo- was Josh Holloway. Like every time I see his face, exactly. I'm like, I wish you were Josh Holloway instead. Right. He would be so much more likable. He's not supposed to be likable. <laughs> well, true. But like, you know. There's also I the Josh like- Brolin looking guy. Like. Oh, right. Yeah, every, all, all the Americans <laughs> look like somebody else. It's right. weird. They like, do. Right. So- Recast with the Joshes. Right. My recognition brain. <laughs> kept going oh is that no it's not oh is that no it's not (laughs) right exactly like i wanted him to be sawyer he'd be a bunch better anyway you know there's the moment where they're in the tomb they're digging and there's that kind of you know scary moment of like we're on one side of the statue we're gonna turn the corner and oh surprise it's the other team they're also here Mm -hmm. and everybody's got their guns out and it's like a gun standoff blah 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 really fun And then Evie realizes that, like, what they actually need is beneath them. There's another solution to this plan that isn't just let's react and shoot. And she's able to signal that to Rick. And Rick 
gets it and like mm. goes along. And so I feel mm. like that he's a leader in terms of like, like you're saying, Trisha, let's just like keep going. Like, let's not stop. Like, let's make sure we have momentum. But he also listens to good ideas and reason. And so it's not like he's overriding his team. It's like he and Evie create this kind of the, you know, a balance, the thing that you want of like, exactly. she's kind of the brains and she and he's the action, but that kind of gets like, you know, they, they have fun with that too. So I feel like that's, it's the the balance that he's not all the way to the, you know, the dumb Americans. And he's kind of, he's in this in-between place where he can be active, but also like listen and compassionate. And that's a really good and smart contrast to Indiana Jones because Indiana mm. Jones by this point had become, you know, such the iconic adventurer. But Indiana Jones himself is a professor. So he has to also right. be smart. Right. He also mm. has to, Indiana Jones has to puzzle and like uncover clues and do the sort of, yeah, treasure hunt kind of like put things together part. But here with the split where you have two of them, you have Evie to do the puzzling and uncovering the clues and all of that stuff. And then you have Rick to do all of the action and the, you know, the gunfighting and everything. And it's just cool that in no at no point, because they've separated those traits out into those two different characters, you never think of him as being very similar to Indiana Jones. He really is his own sort of distinctive character that, right. you know, has kind of become iconic from this movie. It's interesting how I've noticed on Twitter and just online recently, there's a lot of people that are nostalgic for this movie, like recently. I, I, I've seen tweets that are like, this is the ultimate movie for bisexuals. And it's just like a picture of Rachel Weisz <laughs> and Brendan Fraser. There's and a lot of thirst about the cast. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of thirst about this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes sense. But yeah, I feel like it, it holds an iconic place for a certain generation. And it's it's weirdly kind of coming back into consciousness right now for some reason. Mm -hmm. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, now that we've talked about Brendan Fraser, can we talk about the absolute star of this movie, Rachel Weiss, and how damn good she is in this? And how adorable she is. She, the yes. sound she makes when riding her camel is <laughs> like the cutest <laughs> thing in the world. But, it, but it's, a, yeah, it is one of those roles where it's like you set her up as this sort of nerdy character. Um, but then a lot, like a lesser movie would just be like, well, that's who this character is, right? But it's sort of like she gets to be that but also funny and also graceful and like you know a, a person of action at some point and like that kind of thing and it's just it's like a nice character in the sense that she gets to be so well-rounded but also just rachel vice is one of those actors who's so like not afraid to do anything right like she she whatever this scene calls for she will do it to 100 percent, and it just makes her so watchable throughout the whole movie and so engaging mm -hmm. yeah the character is very charming because she the character herself is has no real she's not putting on anything like she she's very yes. earnest she's very straightforward she's openly nerdy and excited about egyptology mm -hmm. and it's interesting because you know it's it's in this moment in time maybe and also just because of the way the movie is is calling back to old hollywood tropes she kind of gets to both be 
the modern brains of the operation kind of like female protagonist. But also she gets to be like total damsel in distress and old Hollywood moments of getting kissed by the dead thing and being strapped <laughs> up at the end to the like, uh, you know, uh-huh. sacrifice altar to be rescued. So it's an interesting blend of of both, you know, the kind of 90s woman where it's like, I'm the smart one. I'm, you know, you'll be lost without me. And yet also she kind of gets to do the classical ho- old Hollywood thing all in the same movie, uh, mm-hmm. which is it's a rare combo. You don't really, usually usually it'd be you know, today. Once again, we might swing all the way to she's almost one dimensional in this new way, in this 21st century way where it's like I am basically like a one dimensional, perfect like brainiac mm-hmm. person and i don't even get to have fun because i'm like very serious and that's like, <laughs> right. that's no fun either like right, right, I, right. I like the combo we get to have here and she's radiant yeah and she's smiling so much in this movie yes that yeah. i was just realizing as i was watching it this time just how much her smile like lights up everything around mm. her it's exactly what you're talking about alex it's the earnestness of the character and how she's so thrilled to be there. And even yes. when the mummy is like trying to kill her, she's a little bit excited that like anything <laughs> right. excite like is happening. A mummy to her. is trying to kill her. Yeah. Right. That's crazy. Like when things are happening, she's not scared. She keeps her wits about her, for one, which is also just wonderful, right? Where like she's just reading the hieroglyphics as fast as she can while sort of, you know, the, everything is sort of devolving around her and she's like patience is a virtue you know kind of thing <laughs> right she also yeah just has this sort of refreshing joy at being at in this movie at all <laughs> and, like, right. in this adventure right and that's such a lovely character to have where she's not scared she's never like screaming she's never crying she doesn't want to go home she wants to be there right she's the she's like right. super game she is the one who drags him out onto this like adventure because she's so excited to go on this adventure. You know, she rescues him. She buys him out of prison to take him on an adventure. And that's just a lovely, you know, sort of secondary protagonist to have. It reminds me of her character in The Brothers Bloom, which also mm-hmm. is a very earnest, sweet, kind of go-getter character who wants adventure. And yeah, she's she somehow, Rachel Weisz seems to be particularly good at capturing that just charm and energy and yeah, the, the smiling is yes. really <laughs> yeah, right. yeah well it's funny because I, I was just looking at her filmography and i think that she's someone who didn't really come to my attention until a good five or six years later since i didn't see this movie um and i think she's sort of around that time developed a not necessarily typecasting but she was often playing a sort of more stoic adult character you know which she also does incredibly well um so it was very refreshing to see her as this like younger, more excitable, you know, very smiley kind of character. Because it's like, oh, that's also Rachel Vice. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I always knew her as the girl from the Mummy, right? Of course, right. like how I knew her. Yeah, when when for our episode on the favorite, I was watching a lot of interviews with her, and she there was a question about like how did you go about you know kind of crafting your character, and she's such like an interesting role model for women and blah blah blah. And Rachel Vice was like, at that time, I was just excited to be cast in a thing, like I was a young actor, and I was just so so. I, I feel like perhaps some of that just genuine excitement that she had to be there, like helped that character like bring some of that energy to it and just like the idea of smiling i want someone who has more time on their hands than me to create a chart of the amount of screen time per movie 
with smiling in it right. over mm-hmm. time. Because I feel like we don't smile anymore don't in, smile movies. in movies. Like just the, the smiling <laughs> per capita has dropped dramatically. <laughs> yeah. For our episode on Annihilation, join our Patreon. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Speaking of no smiles. Zero right. smile film. Uh, yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> Or watch Devs for a Zero Smile limited series. Yeah. Alex Garland does not like smiles. So watch his movies if you hate smiling. I guess the other word I'm looking for for her is curious, right? She has this curiosity, which is what, you know, inspired her to be an Egyptologist and makes her so excited about the adventure and everything. But it enables her to ask questions and her curiosity is what makes her game. But also it like, kind of leads to some of the most charming and iconic scenes in this. I love the scene where she, on the riverboat, where she just asks him why he kissed her. Right. She's like, why did you kiss me? <laughs> and he's just like, you know, has the most Rick answer of all time. Seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> I was about to be hanged. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah. But that's just a lovely exchange where, you know, he's so ready to deal with the next problem. Mm. And again, like, sort of opportunistic, right? kind of thing like that's what makes him roguish and she just has this delightful curiosity where she's not afraid to ask him to his face and then i love the scene afterward where she's like brushing her hair and she's like well it wasn't that good of a kiss anyway but she's so <laughs> distracted by it it's just i don't know i love the, the romance in this movie is really charming not just because of their characters but because it's part of the text like the movie doesn't go out of its way to put them at odds or ignore that the romance is happening, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I feel like both of those things feel contrived where they're not doing a Han and Leia like, well, I don't like you. Well, you do too. <laughs> they're not doing that. And they're also not like just acting like, oh, we're thrown together, right? Mm-hmm. Where accidentally this thing has knocked me into your arms. That also feels very contrived. But there's this sweetness to this romance where he immediately is checking on her after like a skirmish Mm. or whatever. And there's, I don't know, I was looking at it this time and there's this one scene where she's just, he checks on her. He's like, are you okay? And then she just stands there and he just kind of holds her and there, someone is like telling exposition to them and she's just (laughs) sort of in his arms and it's sort of just midway through, but it's just this very cute, it feels more genuine Mm. than I think either one of those other two options, which feel a little more tired and also, yeah, not as, just more tired. Yeah. As tropes. I feel like even like the cadence of how the relationship builds is interesting because, you know, he kisses her without permission. And so it's a little bit like you, you know, you dog, how dare you? Yeah, Yeah, you scoundrel. (laughs) So then she's like, ugh, that guy. And then you see him and he's all like cleaned up and it's Brendan Fraser. And so you get like, okay, well now maybe (laughs) she's into it, but maybe he's not there. Like, I feel like he only kind of gives... Uh, like starts to vocalize an attraction after they've like spent time together. And he's sort of saying like, I can't figure her out. So it it feels like they kind of both eventually arrive at a like attraction, not just because you are the man here and I am the woman here, but after spending time with each other and like what the other one means, you know, they're each kind of like a reflection, like a mirror for each other a little bit. And like, I think she's kind of, using him to figure out like who am i am i an adventurer or like i don't know there's there's just more happening there than just we are the male and female leads and so we must be in a relationship and it's yeah it's hard to pick apart but i feel like it does elevate it and make it something special and it's just again it's brendan fraser 
Rachel Vice in that. It's chemistry. <laughs> Does so much work. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. they have great, great chemistry. But also it's in the writing. Like and I think it is definitely in the characters and clearly in the direction here where the way that they're sort of like, yeah, blocked at every moment where he's sort of always watching out for her, you know, and she is watching out for him, as you pointed out earlier, Michael, where the bullets are coming and she reaches over and grabs him and saves him and that kind of thing. Yeah. The Mummy Returns is like a whole other thing. I don't know if you guys rewatched that. That was... Well, I remember, they don't they have a kid? They do. Movie? So they have a kid married, and also yeah. like the, the movie like jumps the shark. Like if you think... Like it goes crazy and that the one mummy jumps the shark. Yeah, Brian, have you, did you see the Mummy Returns? No, but my question is: Is the kid British? And if so, what does he call? What does he refer to Rachel Vice as? Yes, and I can't remember because if it's Mum? well, if it's Mummy, then I'm out. Uh, no, stop it! Somebody, I mean, kick don't him. tell me that's not the kind of thing that would happen in a sequel to this movie. I mean, that's the kind of thing that could happen in this movie. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, I won't say any more about the Mummy Returns, but Brian, I want you to go watch it and then report. Like, I want to hear. We need to debrief about what you make of because that. you love the Mummy so much. You now need to go watch the sequel. <laughs> yeah, I want to see because it it goes places. But it is this thing of like, did I have fun? Yeah, and do I? Am I curious about spending more time in this world? Yeah, you know. So it's just like, am I excited about the idea of watching a movie that I, I will probably like less? Like, no. But at the same time, <laughs> I I like you know just hearing you guys talk about the mummy and remembering <laughs> scenes and stuff. I'm just like having fun remembering that. You know, like you said, Alex. It's there's a sort of immersion to it where you're like, I just want to. I feel like I can walk around in this world and like actually be with these characters, and it sort of feels like a ride, and that is fun. And that's why I could see there being a sort of clamoring for so much more, you know, in this franchise, basically, that happened over the following 10 years with next two mummy movies and then Scorpion King. And then I think there was like another Scorpion King movie, right? Like just it kind of kept going for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I want a Disneyland scale experience of like Mm -hmm. the mummy universe. (laughs) I think that'd be really fun to go just to literally walk around in. The mummy ride at Universal Studios is still one of the best rides over there to be honest i mean like, it's not it's not much of like an experience though besides just like shooting you through like darkness really quick right it's just like an indoor roller coaster yeah but sorry it, universal <laughs> studio just doesn't have any good rides anymore so, like, it's true they, i mean they don't have much space they're, they're, they're like on a hill you know yeah, they don't have any space but yeah. the mummy ride is a really good one by comparison to most of the other ones at universal studios <laughs> correct right it's actually a ride it's not it's not a motion yeah. Wow, sorry. So <laughs> sorry, this took a turn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from The Mummy. Before we dive into lessons, uh, I want to take a moment to thank all the patrons who support the show. We've been doing mm-hmm. Beyond Screenplay for over two years now, which is kind what? of hard to believe. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, and we want to make sure we can keep doing it for years to come. So if you are enjoying the show, we'd really appreciate your support. There are lots of ways to support Beyond the Screenplay. Simply telling a friend about it uh, is always useful. Most podcasts grow via word of mouth. Uh, checking out our sponsors always helps and encourages them to keep sponsoring the show. And of course, you can support us on Patreon. When you join, you can get access to our Discord and chat with a growing community of fellow film nerds. Get access to 24 patron-exclusive episodes. I counted those, which makes sense, I guess, two years. Yeah. Mm. 
there's there's a new one every month and you will help us get closer to reaching our goal which as brian mentioned earlier when we hit 750 patrons we'll do a three-part series on the indiana jones movies and then a special patron exclusive on refrigerators and aliens and crystal skulls Uh, but clearly we have a lot of thoughts about this adventure genre and i feel like i just want to talk about indiana jones now Mm -hmm. help us grow the show and join our awesome community over at patreon.com slash beyond the screenplay all right lessons from the mummy trisha start us off i love betty Mm. (laughs) i'm gonna talk about betty for a minute it is awesome to have a henchmen i don't know they're just i feel like Mm -hmm. there aren't great henchmen anymore this used to be a staple of action adventure movies the james bond henchmen are some of the most iconic characters in the james bond series and Mm -hmm. i'm sorry hench people uh (laughs) (laughs) hench persons i'm sorry use the gender neutral correct term for hench for hench things (laughs) but betty is a great one he starts off as this like tentative ally he's one of the first characters we meet we actually meet him before we meet the rachel vice character Mm -hmm. and he manages to continue like i don't know he's sort of always maneuvering and pushing the plot whenever he needs to but he also has a lot of personality and yes. <laughs> is just wonderful to hate, you know? And part of that is uh, Kevin J. O'Connor's performance, which is fantastic in this. But it's also just a cleverly utilized character because you often have to keep your villain and your hero from really confronting each other too soon, right? You got to mm. keep them apart. And a henchman is a great way to do that, mm-hmm. where you can tie up your hero fighting with the henchman And you can keep your villain like a big, scary bad and save him for the climax. And this movie utilizes Benny to do that really well. A good henchman is a great device and also a fun character for actors to play and Mm -hmm. can end up being an iconic character. And Benny's death in this is wonderful. Like (laughs) Benny makes it longer than the mummy does. He outlives the (laughs) mummy and he almost gets away. And then he has that such a great death right at the end. I just feel like the art of the henchman has really been lost. And Benny is a very, very good one. Yeah, that's yeah, a really great point. And then he shows up and there will be blood and you're like, wait a minute, where do I know this person from? And then you look up (laughs) on IMDb and like, wait, he's the guy from the mummy? That was my experience anyway. That's funny. And also the scene where uh, Rick is kicking the crap out of him to get information is just a really, really great scene. Where he's threatening like throwing him, him with against, the ceiling fan? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Throwing him against one wall, throwing him over here. And yeah, I, I also just, yeah, a good henchman who does have like shifting loyalties and, mm-hmm. you know, might give up the bad guy, right? He's not like mm-hmm. a true believer. And so, again, just a good plot device. It's just yeah. well utilized is refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. Brian, what about you? Uh, Yeah, that actually ties in really nicely with uh, my lesson, which is about the ensemble cast and Mm -hmm. this sort of dual function it serves on either half of the movie. So in the first half of the movie, they create this constant tension of, as you were saying, Trisha, where do their allegiances lie and what are they going to do? So it's like, is the brother going to turn on them? Is the doctor going to turn on them? Is Benny, maybe, maybe he'll end up being trustworthy. Maybe he'll be the sort of classic henchman who gets a heart at the last minute and decides to you know mm-hmm. stop the the villain or whatever and then you have um Oded Fair's character Ardeth Bay who and his whole group of people where the first half of the movie his job is just to like say cryptic things from a hill mostly but then <laughs> but then when they actually show up you're like oh what are these guys going to do what's their interest and then of course you have all these other treasure hunters the Americans uh which gives the story 
not only tension, but also a nice sense of urgency. It's not just you get to hang out and just wait till you're ready to go do this. It's no, there's a race now to get to this thing, right? A literal race. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then at the midpoint of this movie, it becomes a horror movie. And what do you need for a good horror movie? But a large cast of disposable nobodies. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's an excellent point. Right. So then now we we have all these people we've introduced and we're like, but you don't care about any of them. So let's watch them all get killed. So there's this interesting sort of parabolic arc, right? Uh, where we have over the first half, more and more cast members joining, more and more characters joining the cast. And then after the midpoint, they all start fading away, basically, as they become mummy fodder. So it's kind of nice to see the cast serving that dual purpose. It's not just once the mummy comes out, then they just don't matter anymore. It's like, no, no, we have these characters. Now let's use them for this sort of other subgenre of movie that it turns <laughs> into at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I like that. Alex, what about you? My lesson is often the lesson that I jump to, which is about the promise of the premise, which is I just mm. love a movie that leaves nothing off on the table. Is that the and now I'm having a Michael brain like idiom questioning? Yeah, it leaves nothing on the table because everything went into it. I think so. You know what I mean? Basically, <laughs> it leaves no tomb unrated. There you go. Exactly. Yeah, you know, this is a movie that's not saving something for a sequel, even though they made a sequel because they made a lot of money. It's thinking about, okay, I'm gonna do a throwback adventure Egypt mummy curse movie. Like, what are all the things that that implies? We're gonna do the treasure hunters, we're gonna do the biblical plagues, we're gonna do ancient curses, we're gonna do the requisite scenes at the end with like the Indiana Jones walls coming in and you're escaping. Like, we're gonna do all of it. And then we're going to do it a little bit more with like CG mummies, you know, doing backflips and Brendan Fraser fighting them. <laughs> like it, it's, it's the kind of movie that when it gets to that finale, it's already given me everything I want. And then it, but it's still going. And it, it reminds me of Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean in that, in that way, where it's like Pirates mm -hmm. kind of feels like a movie and a half where it's like, I, I've gotten what I came for, but we're still going and it's still awesome and it's still fun. It's not getting tiresome. And the mummy has that same feeling of just we're going to do it all and we're going to do it. We're going to do it in a, in a varied enough way that you don't get tired of it. You, you actually are excited about the ride the whole time up until that last frame when they ride off into the sunset. And mm -hmm. it's just perfect. I guess the lesson is if you're going to if you get this chance to do a big high concept thing, just do it all the way. Think about what an audience wants from this kind of movie and, and just do it. And, and if you get to make a sequel later great you'll have to figure that out later but in this first right. movie give us everything we want with a movie called the mummy <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> certain kinds of genres are not about restraint Just <laughs> right. everything and yes. the kitchen sink <laughs> right. put it right in there like if pirates had saved some piratey things for like the next movie that wouldn't have worked it's like no, no, just do it all here we're gonna have the pirate ship like direct battling we're gonna have the undead curses we're gonna have it all in this one movie and once again, you'll have to figure out some weird stuff for the sequels because we've already done no, it. Right. <laughs> right. Maybe not the best recipe for sequels, but it's the best right. recipe for a good movie. Yeah. Right. Correct. There is one little action thing that I think we can be done with as movies forever, which The Mummy does and The Fifth Element does, which is a character is about to sort of, it's usually a side shot and a character is about to hit an enemy, but there's an enemy coming up behind them and we don't know if they know that the enemy's coming up behind them. And then either on purpose or by accident, 
with the backswing before they're about to hit the enemy in front of them, they take out the enemy behind them. I'm like, and granted, the mummy is 20 plus years ago, but I'm like, I've seen this happen so many times in movies now that I don't need to see it ever again. That'd be fine. I also love the like Han Solo style, like charge around the corner, (laughs) come charging right back around. Followed by enemies. Exactly. Followed by enemies. Yeah. One other thing that I, that made me think of pirates and just a ton of movies is the way that Imhotep is literally about to complete his task. Like he's raising the dagger to do the thing, to finish everything. And there's like a disruption in the corner. And so he, he stops and he's like, I'm going to go right. check out what's happening <laughs> over here. Yeah. It's like you could have just finished and like been like immortal and done. But you decided to like stop, check out the sound just to double <laughs> the check. Ruckus. Yeah. Or, or the classic, like you just cut my arm off. So I'm going to throw you towards the other side of the room and then walk towards you slowly. Like, wait, what? <laughs> I do feel like the first time you see Imhotep and he he he's in the hotel room or whatever. And after like. Brendan Fraser empties his 40 shots from his two little guns. The mummy just comes up, walks and just kind of tosses him across the room. Yeah. And it's, it's like, I feel like you could have done so much more. Like you're putting distance between you and your target. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. One thing I just wanted to call out was how much the movie it really enjoys the draw stretching effect that it figured out. Oh, right. It just like really right. embraces that. Like all mummies can drop their jaws and it's horrifying. <laughs> and we're going to do it yeah. like a o- snake over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> right inspiring pirates and i am legend and all You're these right. things mm-hmm. this all sort of ties into my lesson which is you know i mentioned earlier i like it when movies don't worry about too much verisimilitude like mm-hmm. sometimes i just want to go to a theater and the, the movie starts and it feels like it's telling me i'm just gonna tell you a story like this is a story you don't have to think it's true like i'm not gonna spend a bunch of time like you're just gonna have fun and we're going to tell you a story and just like sit back relax and enjoy the ride and doesn't mean that like it you know it still has to be well constructed and well written and there are i think things about the script that are again maybe not good but great like even if all the beats don't maybe always make sense how you got there they're always the beats you want to be at and within them they are doing the thing and uh yeah i don't know i just i really appreciate this kind of tone that as we've been saying is is missing of just like like we're just gonna it's just gonna be a movie like sometimes you just, I just want <laughs> someone to make a movie and just show me a movie and not <sighs> I I think the thing that I I was mentioning earlier I think there's this thing with like IP world building that's happening right now that doesn't let movies be movies you know it's it's like this is just one chapter of some right. bigger grand plan and so this can't just be a movie it's got to actually lay a foundation of like a new For universe dark universe a dark <laughs> universe yeah speaking of <laughs> other mummy movies <laughs> yeah things that are the most opposite of this also like it's so it has none of the things that are good about the mummy in it no. anyway 2017 yeah oh boy what have you guys been watching recently brian tell me about what you've been watching recently uh, so at the end of our Paddington episode, we had a mini Sally Hawkins love fest, and I wanted to keep it going. So I was looking into her filmography, and I discovered a movie I'm not sure I ever heard of. It's called Maudie from 2016, uh, directed by Ashling Walsh, and it stars Sally Hawkins and Ethan Hawke. So you got, yeah, yeah, yeah. you got double the hawk. Um, and uh, <laughs> yes, Mike, Michael just... <laughs> 
shadow puppeted a hawk for all of you <laughs> listeners out there. But uh, Sally Hawkins plays Maud Lewis, who is a real life folk artist from Nova Scotia, um, who her paintings became famous toward the end of her life in about the 1960s. Uh, and she had severe arthritis and she was sort of um, ba- basically really challenging for her to move towards the end of her life. But she was still making paintings and, you know, doing everything she could. The movie at least paints her as this, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> treats her as this sort of social outcast uh, by her family and the people around her. And towards the beginning of the story, she moves in with Ethan Hawke, who is sort of another social outcast, just a very gruff Mm, bear of a man um who's a fish peddler and uh fish but, peddler uh, yeah fish peddler but no it sort of follows their relationship and, and how her paintings start to take off and all that kind of thing and, and the movie is good but the performances the two of them are just mm. bananas on toast amazing as you would expect um sally hawkins just insanely good like why was this performance not all over the world when, you know, it, it happened? But also, I usually have trouble whenever Ethan Hawke tries to pretend he's not Ethan Hawke in a movie. Sure. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I'm like, don't pretend you're this, you know, person, you're whatever. Like, you're just Ethan Hawke. Just be Ethan Hawke. I like you best that way. But he totally nails it for this character. He just slips into the performance in a way where I feel like I, I forget I'm watching Ethan Hawke. So the two of them both the performances together, but also their interaction with each other is really beautiful. Uh, Maudie, M-A-U-D-I-E 2016. Check it out. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. All right. Trisha, what have you been watching? So my sister was visiting me recently because vaccines and things are opening and people can fly on planes now and all that stuff. And uh, we were looking for something to watch when she was here and she was like, have you been watching Queer Eye? And I was Mm -hmm. like, no, because... (laughs) For some reason, I don't know, I was trying to act like reality TV is beneath me or something, which it definitely is not. Like, I love <laughs> Great British Baking Show as much as anybody else does and and also HGTV house shows and things like that. So I, I do watch, like, versions of, you know, reality shows or whatever, but I was like, Queer Eye, pa, absolutely. I do not watch that makeover show you speak of. <laughs> It is amazing. And I've like basically watched all of Queer Eye. And it's just such a tonic for my heart. Like, I don't know. I just really have been loving it. It's so good. And so much of it was filmed like, so it's on your Netflix, by the way. And it is a makeover show, um, but they do all the things like they fix the person's house and they like teach them to cook and and they also like fix their wardrobe and they also like fix their hair and grooming. And they also, like, fix their life as much as they can, where they try to, like, repair relationships in their life and things like that. Um, It's great. And they've, you know, done different seasons. There was a season in Kansas City. There was a season in Atlanta. And they go to, you know, often places where, you know, they don't, they're not, there isn't a lot of queer culture. And they kind of, like. Right. I was going to say, when you said those cities. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And they, they roll into areas where they like may not be welcome and they there are people on the show that you would like not expect to ever be on the show where you're like who nominated you for this what made you say yes like you know and (laughs) but you i don't know the show is just like really well put together and i'm sure there's the veneer of reality tv is over it and it's edited heavily 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 (laughs) to make it into this little sort of heartwarming, you know, hour long package of like, 
someone from rural Missouri learned about how much, you know, the, the Fab Five could influence them to get over their divorce and reconnect with their kids. And you're like, okay, probably not. But, <laughs> but like, I love that story. Uh, um, right. <laughs> it, I don't know. It's just, it's really great. It's just really, really great. Get uh, rid of the verisimilitude. Just tell the story. Like, right. That's all we care there you about. Go. Right. <laughs> and the personalities of the guys. Look, you guys all watch it. Why am I telling you what Queer Eye is? Like, it's awesome. I'm just, I just want to tell you. I really, really love it. I have not seen any, but Wikipedia tells me that the fifth season is based in Philadelphia. So I'm going to go watch that immediately. Yes. I mean, and it is great. It, nice. they, they just. They do. It's such a well-produced show. They do such a good job of getting a cross section of people mm. from all walks of life to be a part of this, like sort of, yeah, little makeover experience. So they've like had like a young doctor who's like just finished her residency and she is, um, you know, like starting her full time career. And then they also have like a farmer and they have a firefighter and then they have like a a man who is disabled because he was shot in the abdomen. Like they do a really great job of telling different people's stories. So hmm. um, strongly recommend if for some reason, like me, you thought you were above queer eye. I'm here to tell you, you are not. <laughs> nice. Excellent. Well, so I've, I've mentioned before that I have this weird relationship with Scorsese films and Shutter Island in particular, mm. where I decide I want to watch it, watch it, get hooked come away liking it think about it more and then i'm like wait did i like that or do i not like that movie <laughs> and then like a year passes and then i'm like i think i want to watch shutter island and i just like do the whole thing over again so i just watched shutter island again <laughs> uh, but i feel like i've completed my arc with it and i think part of what i've identified is that the first time i saw it you know it's a it's a movie that's twisty and playing with your perception of reality and what what is and what isn't. And the way it ends left a question in my mind that I've been trying to answer every time I watch it. And I think I've finally found the answer and have resolved any like unresolved feelings I had with it. And I can't say any more without completely spoiling the movie. I want to talk to you about this. Hmm. I think like The Mummy, I don't know that it's like a good movie, but it's kind of great. And mm. I think I really, really like it. That's where I've come down on it. So perhaps my last Shutter Island rewatch is what I have done recently. And thumbs wow. up. Interesting. Because I just tried to watch this for the first time. And oh, I, no, I tried to watch it for the first time and mm. I bailed on it about 25, <sighs> 30 minutes in. Mm. But you should watch it. Like, I get it. It's, it's, I feel like it acts like it's scarier than it is. Yeah, that it's, was the it's reason. It's a whole thing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it was late at night. <laughs> sure. Don't watch it late at night. But I think okay. it's really interesting. It'd be fun to talk about it at some point. Yeah, I watched it once and was like, okay. Then that's the end of my relationship with that movie. So I'd be interested to watch it again. Right. I think that's probably what most people's is. But yeah, yeah. I, it, it's stuck in my brain. But I think I finally cracked it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And Alex, last but not least, uh, I know you watched something on Curiosity Stream, who is back again as the sponsor of this episode. Curiosity Stream, if you don't know, is the streaming service featuring thousands of documentaries and nonfiction titles. Alex, what did you watch? So I watched The Kingdom, How Fungi Made Our World, or Fungi. I don't know. They, they say it a bunch of different ways in the documentary. Like Fungi? Fungi, yeah. Hmm. Fungi, fungi, fungi. I heard it like all three ways by scientists in the documentary. 
anyway, it's a documentary about fungi, however you want to say it. <laughs> and it's really fascinating. It's, it's a good companion piece to another documentary I recommended some episode way back when uh, called Fantastic Fungi, which, which is a really fun doc. Uh, but this one on Curiosity Stream is a little bit more about natural history and about the role that this weird thing, this separate kingdom from plants and animals, fungi, it, it played this really crucial role in helping basically life move out of the ocean and onto land. Like it basically made it possible for plants to, to proliferate over the land, made it possible for mammals to, to really like take over the world after the dinosaurs. So basically we're all here because of this weird mushroom thing. <laughs> and it's a, it, it gets really into just all these different steps at which it was a crucial part of evolution. And then it gets into some really horrifying stuff near the end about how climate change is making it so types of fungi that normally wouldn't be in like our habitats is going to start coming out, which may be like lethal and uh, kill people. So it ended on a really like disturbing (laughs) note (laughs) about like an outbreak in Vancouver in recent years where people were like getting infected with a thing that was never seen outside of Australia before. So anyway, (laughs) lots of lots of great stuff. And I, I really am fascinated with fungi and mushrooms and the way they interact with forests, it's, it's just a weird alien thing. And I think the science on it is still kind of new. Uh, so really worth checking out on Curiosity Stream. I think there was like a, a radio lab that I listened to that was kind of about that. It feels like maybe it was like the Cliff Notes version of, of this documentary. And it was really fascinating, just like how much of evolution was shaped by this thing that we kind of didn't think about at all, but is like the reason everything is the way it is. So That's cool. I'm excited about it. Awesome. All right. Well, if you, listener, want to check out The Kingdom, How Fungi Made Our World, and support Beyond the Screenplay, sign up for CuriosityStream at curiositystream.com slash screenplay. The link is in the show notes. And when you sign up for CuriosityStream, you also get free access to Nebula, which is the streaming service featuring exclusive and ad-free content from some of the best educational creators out there, including many of our past guests, Lindsay Ellis, Maggie Mae Fish, Patrick Willems, Just Right, and many, many more. So sign up for Curiosity Stream at curiositystream.com slash screenplay or by using the link in the show notes. This has been our conversation about the mummy. This was a lot of fun. I'm glad we finally got a chance to do this because we've been talking about it internally for a long time. So <laughs> I'm glad we went for it. I really want to make Brian watch the sequel. All right. Maybe we shall okay. get together and... Because we can do that soon. That's right. Yay. Mommy Returns live stream in one week. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Awesome. Well, yes, this has been a conversation about the mummy. Thank you, as always, to the patrons for making the show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.